The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by amazing and talented and incredible co-host and friend, Mr. Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Oh, shucks. You're spoiling me. Well, that's what I'm here to do. Um, Well, that and every week, Dan and I are going to go beyond the headlines of the top TV stories and offer a deep dive into the latest news. This week, we are coming to you live from the Langham Hotel in Pasadena, where we're halfway through. Halfway? The Television Critics Association's Winter Press Tour, TCA. Not the Teen Choice Awards, but the semi-annual event where networks and, well, some streamers come through to present new and returning shows and a handful of execs dare to field questions about their slates. Dan, most, most streamers, most streamers. Says and, TCA President Daniel Feinberg. And some execs. Some is some more or less than a handful, Leslie. I'm going to go with less. So let's start with what's been happening at TCA for our first topic this week. Number one. Thus far, we've seen NBC, CBS, The CW, Showtime, FX, Freeform, ABC, and Fox. (coughs) PBS. And PBS. With executive debuts from ABC's Carrie Burke and Fox's Charlie Collier. As we've discussed in previous podcasts, Burke and Collier were among our most anticipated panels, and they largely did not disappoint. But Burke, who came over after serving as head of originals at Freeform, said she wants to bring back women to the network. Collier attempted, at least, to explain his vision for the the so-called New Fox broadcast network once it officially splits from its studio counterpart. Dan, what are your impressions so far of those two? I I think they had different jobs to do here, and I think they both did a reasonably good job with what they were trying to do. I think that with, with Carrie Burke... Her general point was, here's what the brand was. Maybe we got away from it to some degree. Here's how we're getting back to it. Whereas Charlie Collier had to come out and he had to actually announce what the name of New Fox is. So it's now, what is it again? Fox Entertainment. Fox Entertainment, which again, sounds a little bit like what I already called the studio that used to be 20th Century Fox Entertainment. That's so 20th Century Fox TV or 20th TV. It's all just a bunch of uh, words and New Fox at least kind of made sense to me. But yeah, he had to come out and explain what it was that they were doing at all. Like, what is this thing going to suddenly become? And I think that was a more complicated thing. Now, credit to Charlie Collier. What he did spectacularly well was he had an introduction where they played the music and the hippo from... The Masked Singer came out and... Our ta- favorite show. Our, every, the world's favorite show came out and, and talked in the high-pitched squeaky voice and, and removed the mask. And it was Jonathan Banks who worked with Charlie uh, Collier at AMC on Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. So in terms of introductions, definite points 
to Charlie Collier. I, I believe you felt, though, as if Carrie Burke came across better, at least in terms of your purposes and what you need from an executive. Well, I want to go back to Charlie really quick. I mean, props on the on the entrance. Carrie Burke also had an incredible interest with Jimmy Kimmel right. setting her up. Right, right. Um, and getting Kimmel to come out to TCA. Look, it was nothing like the upfronts in which he kind of skewers the network every year for advertisers in New York. But I think, you know, look, we heard from Collier for 45 minutes. I just posted a one-on-one interview that I had with him, and I still don't have a large idea for what Fox Entertainment is as a network. I have a better idea of of structurally how the studio is going to work or their lack thereof with 20th Century Fox TV moving to Disney once that deal is officially closed. But that's like we're super in the development trench weeds here. And I don't know how interesting that is to to our listeners, but for me, as someone who covers the development season and who wants to write about a narrative of what kind of shows this network, this new entertainment network is, like he set out, we are starting from day one. I'm not really sure what that is. Are you? Wrestling, Friday nights. Wrestling, football, (laughs) Major League Baseball. Look, you got me with Major League Baseball, but in terms of scripted, I don't know what the mandate is. I mean- The narrative that we've been following so far is that Fox wants big, broad, loud, noisy procedurals and multi-camera comedies that that appeal to middle America, like Last Man Standing. But beyond that narrative, which existed before Charlie replaced Gary Newman and Dana Walden left for Disney, that was the same narrative. Yeah, but that was before they had Sidecar. Sidecar, for those of you who don't know, is a quote-unquote content development accelerator headed by former Fox chief Gail Berman. But Leslie, what the blazes is a content development accelerator? Well, we are, again, deep in the development (laughs) weeds here. So from a big picture standpoint, Fox the Broadcast Network, a.k.a. Fox Entertainment, will lose its studio counterpart, 20th TV. That will become a Disney brand. And shows like Modern Family and This Is Us and The Simpsons will now be owned by Disney. So with that sale, Fox loses all of its overall deals with top showrunners like Dan Fogelman and does not have a content pipeline for scripted fare and unscripted for that matter. And what Charlie hopes to do with Sidecar is... Take advantage of not only Gail Berman's reputation, she developed Buffy, she's got a very large heart, she was behind tidying up with Marie Kondo, with her company, The Jackal Group, but he's hoping to lean on Gail's relationships, experience in the industry, and development experience, and bringing creators new and big time to the network. And from where I see it, kind of borrowing a little bit from AMC's development strategy, which is very different than that of a broadcast network. AMC's development model has always been the script to series fashion, meaning they'll pick up a script, hand out some money, open a writer's room, green light a couple of scripts, pay for all of that, and have a better idea of not only what the show is, but where it's going, and then pick it up to straight to series. So no casting, no pilot, no notes on, on the pilot. It's just here are the scripts. We like the scripts. It's on the air. And then we go back and kind of do it backwards where we cast it and produce it and go from there. And that feels a little bit like what Charlie is hoping to do with Sidecar. That feels a little bit like the strategy that brought us such series as Feed the Beast on AMC. One and done. This is a fun game. What else did they do? I mean, it hasn't been extremely successful for AMC in that model. They've had a little more success more recently with shows like Lodge 49, which came through that model, I I believe. But, I mean, look, we're talking about a development pipeline for a broadcast network. That's a huge deal. But not everything that Fox 
entertainment does is going to come from Sidecar. The hope is, for Charlie anyway, that Gail will be able to help bring in new projects with new creators and work alongside studios and help populate this network with its next development slate. And of course, this is coming in the middle of pilot season when the network has already handed out, as of recording time, 11 orders, including two straight-to-series animated shows, and the bulk of them are from 20th Century Fox. So it really feels a lot like business as usual at that network right now, but I think once the Disney deal closes, you'll see, it will start, at least I hope, to get a better idea of what the network is in terms of maybe handing out some more renewals beyond The Simpsons, maybe seeing some other pilots from different studios. I mean, they have three right now from from outside studios, and one of them's from Entertainment One, which is not a studio that has a lot of success on broadcast. I think their biggest hit has been Designated Survivor, but it's a work in progress, that network. I feel like any time you mention the phrase Designated Survivor, the listing of the number of showrunners five. is just it's r- five. <laughs> It's just right on your tongue, and you either needed the prompting or you didn't. So in this case, you needed the prompting. Um, it's, no. it's one of my favorite stories. I won't lie. I it is it is an. It's amusing. had more showrunners than seasons. It, it's had more showrunners than networks. It remains remarkable to me that that show is actually coming back on Netflix. But that has nothing to do with Fox. No, I, honestly, I think once you look at Fox Entertainment and once you have. For next season, you got a little wrestling, you got a little football, you got a little baseball, you got a little Last Man Standing, you got a little Empire, you got a little uh, Masked Singer. That and maybe <laughs> Empire. I mean, I would. I asked Charlie what shows he thought that the network had on its air right now that best represent the kind of network he's hoping to build, and he singled out The Simpsons, Empire, and football. I mean, I assume Empire oh, is yeah. coming back, even even though its ratings aren't what it what they were. I would assume it will be. Yeah, and they're going to have to work out new deals with the studio and a new licensing fee. And I mean, these are the, there's a ridiculous amount of business that needs to get done for any of these renewals because every single show that airs on Fox, with the exception of Lethal Weapon, is owned by 20th Century Fox, a.k.a. Disney. Well, and so going back to Carrie Burke a little bit, she she reassured us that she had no qualms or concerns about the Oscars, uh, even though from the outside, the Oscars have looked like a uh, gigantic cluster fudge. And this brings us to our second topic of the week, which is Kevin Hart. Can we just talk about Carrie Burke for NABC for a second? <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't talk about Kevin Hart anymore. I don't want to write about him anymore either. But I want to talk about Carrie Burke. I think... Charlie Collier Fault came a day after Carrie Burke met the press for the first time in her new role as ABC Entertainment president. And the two had very, very different strategies for their executive sessions at TCA. Carrie was very forthcoming. If she didn't know, she said as much. Charlie was an artful and charismatic salesman. And that's a role he needed to be because this is his message to the creative community as much as it is to a room filled with 200 reporters and critics. So Fox wants to see creators' passion projects, and he wants to develop them in a way that's right for them, be it development, script to series, pilot, etc. Carrie Burke came out and basically showed a, a photo of herself from college, from her college yearbook from the 80s, and said, I grew up loving this network. These are the shows that influenced me, and came out and said, ABC lost its position as the number one network among women, and she wants to regain that title back from NBC which, of course, has This Is Us and and had great success in in stealing that crown from them. And Carrie Burke came out and said, this is what my mandate is. And illustrated, these are the pilots that we picked up. If you look at them, a lot of them are female-fronted. And these, again, are scripts that she reviewed that were picked up under Channing Dungy's regime. So she's going through, and of those scripts, finding the ones that best match the mandate that she wants for that network, and that's women. And that's a hell of a lot more than I got from Charlie's session. 
He was asked three different times, twice on stage, once again in the press scrum afterwards about Damon Wayans' status with Lethal Weapon and artfully dodged it all three times. I'm going to go out and call it and say that Burke won the room and Charlie has some work to do. I thought they both did fine. But yes, okay, so you didn't like my Kevin Hart transition. How about, let's say, from two of the least experienced people to be on a TCA panel, let's talk about one of the more experienced people to do TCAs, a regular favorite. Yes, the mayor, the so-called mayor of television, that's FX CEO John Landgraf. Number two. For our second topic this week, John Landgraf came prepared to TCA with fighting words, and his target this time was Netflix. The exec who coined the peak TV term turned the most heads this tour so far when he took a lengthy shot at the viewership numbers Netflix released for series including You and Sex Education. Netflix, which typically does not release any sort of viewership data, recently said during an earnings call that 40 million households, 40 million, that's like Tw- that's two Super Bowls. Watch. We're, that's like, that's we're, like two 20 millions. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. 40 million households were expected to watch Lifetime Reject You within its first four weeks on its platform. Landgraf called that figure, and I quote, not a remotely accurate representation of a long form <laughs> program performance. If that sounds like a shot, that's because it is. Dan, that's fighting words. <laughs> It really is. And and this is like in Landgraf is an exec who has not kept a secret that he has a particular disdain for Silicon Valley. The funny thing is, is that people at the other cable networks and whatever have sort of quietly simmered and and grumbled at all of Landgraf kind of lambasting them for years. And everyone has made fun of how much critics, frankly, love John Landgraf and worship at his feet and come and write down every word he says. But I'm sure that a lot of those people who have been bitter and resentful when his target was them are sitting there going, yeah, you go, John. Yeah, broadcast cable network represent. On one hand, I can fully except what Netflix's contention would probably be, which would be we simply don't play the same game and it's ridiculous for him to get up there and spend 30 minutes of his time comparing the way that we play baseball to the way that he plays football. They're not the same sport. On the other hand, Netflix picks and chooses when it wants to play the same game as everybody else. And And that is hugely problematic. It's the reason I get frustrated. My my policy has always been if Netflix doesn't want to give numbers, Netflix doesn't need to give numbers. I understand their business model is subscriptions. It's not advertisement. I know their business model. But the problem comes, and this is what John Landgraf was talking about, when they tell you what the ratings are, what the quote unquote ratings are for Five of their shows out of 500. You you have no baseline. You have no bottom line. You have no context. You have no idea what any of the terms mean. And you're just supposed to accept it when Netflix says these five shows are our huge hits. Yeah. And let's be clear. <laughs> According to Netflix, they count a viewer if they substantially complete at least one episode, 70 percent due to series variable lengths. And those numbers represent a global audience. So and that's the Netflix talking point. I still don't know what specifically that translates to. So it's 70% of one episode of you globally. So 40 million people globally will watch 70% of one episode of you, but not a full episode or not the full season. I mean, it's, I don't know what that means. It's meaningless. It it just is. And so when you give that number, 
and I don't know how many people watched Ozark and I don't know how many people watch Gypsy and I don't know how many people watch Sense8. All I'm left with is a, okay, you've given me one data point out of a billion when I know that you are a service that has every data point. There is nothing about the way you watch Netflix that Netflix does not know precisely. They know when you pause on somebody's boobs in a nude scene. They can process through the information whose boobs you pause on most frequently. They are compilers of data. And a lot of their explanation for canceling some shows, I mean, the one that that I always kind of hold dear is Everything Sucks. is a charming little 90s comedy coming out story. And the reason they canceled it is because not enough viewers completed the whole season. If you're sharing information like that, then, I mean, give me something more than 40 million people will watch 70% of, so basically what? What's 70% of 40 minutes or 50 minutes of a pilot that aired on Lifetime six months ago? I was told I mean, there would be no math. Yeah, there's no math. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and while we're railing on Netflix and the ratings here, I just want to officially say I reached out to Netflix for comment on Landgraf's remarks and they declined comment. <laughs> And he did he did the Netflix thing last time as well. Not it not to in quite these terms. I, look it, again if, if Netflix wants to give ratings, they can. If they don't, they don't. It's just the the weird piecemeal of giving bits and pieces of numbers for less than one percent of their shows, and then expecting people like you who write about such things to take their word and in stories refer to something as a Netflix hit simply because Netflix. Said it. I, I'm fine to call something like sex education or you a breakout because it's very clear that there's word of mouth, at least in the creative communities. I mean, we all are on social media. We can see when a show is cutting through and when and when one isn't. And both of those shows did indeed cut through. But do I believe that 40 million households watch part of one episode of you on Netflix within its first four weeks? Oh, no, I, I completely believe it. I just don't know what it means. No, I don't think they're fudging the numbers. They could fudge the numbers because, again, who would know? There would be no way of knowing. There's no there's no third-party monitoring system. But I, I trust. I, I, completely, I do trust Netflix here. I just don't trust that I understand what any of it means. Well, let, <laughs> let's focus on something that we do understand here. Let's talk about FX just for a second. You know, Landgraf came out with a number of announcements, including a series order for Why the Last Man, which I'm particularly excited about. That's an incredible graphic novel. But I think the more interesting piece is that that's a network that is going to be without its three major hits, including Atlanta and American Crime Story in 2019. Ryan Murphy currently has no idea and no topic for the next season of Emmy Darling American Crime Story. Donald Glover's schedule is keeping Atlanta off the air this year. Fargo won't be ready until 2020, where it'll be joined by Why the Last Man, Kate Blanchett vehicle Mrs. America. Feud is totally MIA. Ryan has no idea for season two. I mean, this is a network that's that's putting a, an awful lot of pressure on the three big new shows that FX is launching this year. And I guess they feel comfortable with the ability to reload. I guess they feel that, for example, that Mayans did well enough last year. It, it got renewed. It, its numbers were reasonably good. So they figure, OK, that's a new hit and presumably it'll be back. And Fosse Vernon, they, you know, Landgraf has high hopes that that'll be among the year's most critically adored show and that it can also cut through with at the Emmys. And I think that's the kind of show that that is. I don't think after having that's seen... That's an awards play. I, yeah, I don't think after having seen one episode of Fosse Verdon that's going to become some huge breakout. On the other hand, I do think without any question, we're going to be talking about Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams in Emmy conversations, which have now become 
already incredibly muddled. You know, we're getting we're going to get sharp objects and escape at Danamora, and now this. It's a lot of a lot of conversations. I don't think though it's going to be a breakout hit, and so yeah, maybe maybe this is a maybe this is a down year. And if you're yeah, it's a, and it's a year of transition for them because you know this is a network that that also will become part of the Disney fold and get a big cash infusion from Disney to produce and possibly double the number of scripted. At least that's what Landgraf told me in our interview. Which is funny because another one of his big points was the graphic that he showed where he wanted to point out that of FX's programs, I think all but one basically were in top 10 lists last year from critics. And that that one was... One of my favorites, You're the Worst, which had previously been on Critics Top 10 Oh, is that, is that the one that, that wasn't there? The that, and that also airs on FXX, which has a, a lower viewership threshold. So, But still, his, his point was that FX has a much, 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 much higher percentage of quality, quote unquote, programs to regular programs than, you know, Netflix, which, you know, is right. pretty you much on You take fewer at-bats and you get more hits in those at-bats. Exactly. There's there's no question that Netflix is a, a stat accumulator. Yes. So for our next topic, you came straight to TCA from Park City. And boy, are your arms tired. Oh. Number three. You were at the Sundance Film Festival covering the indie episodic selection. What have been your highlights? Among my highlights were the upcoming Showtime documentary of Mike's and Men uh, about the Wu-Tang Clan. That was a tremendous amount of fun. I am a, a large fan of the Wu, and so I thought it was greatly entertaining. Most of the surviving members were in attendance and present, and that was fantastic. I believe only Method Man was not there for whatever reason. He's busy. Maybe season three of The Deuce or something. Who knows? That was pretty fantastic and fun. I watched all four hours of Amazon's Lorena, which did not need to be four hours long, but had moments that were interesting. And uh, on one glorious, sunny, chilly day in Park City, I sat for four hours and watched people accuse Michael Jackson of horrible, horrible, horrible things in HBO's upcoming Leaving Neverland, which was harrowing as heck, I believe. And the Dan Reed documentary was probably the biggest headline to come out of Sundance. This is a four-hour documentary that follows two adult accusers as they recount their relationship with Jackson, and they each reveal allegations of being molested and sexually abused as children by the former king of pop. The family of the late pop star has called it a, quote, tabloid character assassination, and Reed has defended the film, which will air in March on HBO. After four hours of this, Dan, where do you stand on this side of the debate? You know, all you can do is say, are the are the, the accusations feel sincere and credible? And they do. After I posted my review, I've gotten very, very abusive emails from Michael Jackson fans who want to try educating me on the situation involving Wayne Robson and uh, James Safechuck and why they've been debunked. They haven't seen the documentary, so they don't know the documentary very clearly acknowledges that both of these two men have in the past either said in the media or testified under oath that Michael Jackson did not molest them. And this is all acknowledged completely in the documentary. These people feel as if they are capable of understanding, I guess, the mindset of an abuse victim and, and they can, you know, evaluate from the outside whether or not they're truthful and i guess anyone watching who believes feels as if they can watch someone and you know approve or disapprove and my personal inclination is to believe victims and 
this is part of the point of why this documentary has to be as long as it is, or why Dan Reed felt like it had to be as long as it is, is that he wanted to give these guys the chance to tell their story in such detail and depth and nuance that it's, I don't know if you, if you watch this and feel like they're lying, that says as much about you and where you're coming from as if you believe them, I guess. But I believe them and I, I see some of the reasons why the documentary is as long as it is. It's, it's way long and it, it feels punishing to sit through at times, but I don't know that it's not supposed to, you know, I don't, I don't know that you're supposed to walk away from it feeling anything other than beaten down. And when you see, for example, how the media covered Michael Jackson's funeral and, and the celebration, it's hard not to feel uncomfortable with that, but probably not going to necessarily sway all of those Michael Jackson fans who will probably never watch it. Uh, but it's it's harrowing and, you know, following up after surviving R. Kelly, which we talked about a couple podcasts ago, it's it's a lot. And it's it it's a lot, but still, these are stories that have to be told. And so, tough watch. Yeah. Well, there's no easy transition out of that. So let's just move on to our next topic this week. Let's talk about the biggest TV event of the year. Not the Dodgers losing the World Series, but the Super Bowl. Number four. The Patriots beat the Rams 13-3, to and I have PTSD from Boston beating the Dodgers in the World Series. Dan, this game was boring. And aside from The Handmaid's Tale Season 3 trailer and HBO's Bud Light-infused Game of Thrones spot, the commercials felt kind of lackluster. Did this game need a Netflix stunt? I mean, last year they aired a commercial pointing viewers to its Cloverfield cast-off movie that became the talk of the town. But... This game was just, I mean, everything about it was boring. As a Patriots fan, I, I am inclined to disagree. I feel I, as that's if... That's the sound of me rolling my eyes. I, I can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> to, to my mind, defense is a part of football. And this was not like teams playing poorly. It was two teams playing spectacularly on defense. And... I think there is something to be appreciated in that. I think it is a Super Bowl that went into its fourth quarter tied. I, at the end of the day, what else do you want out of the Super Bowl? You want it to be a game going into the fourth quarter. This absolutely was. I understand, though, that it is not the kind of football game that a lot of people love, or and especially a lot of casual fans. I, I think that probably among you know dedicated diehard fans, there are people who like the rough-and-tumble, defensive-heavy, gridiron struggles. And then there are people who like watching creative offenses, which is the direction the today's NFL is going anyway. To me, I thought this was a decent game. I thought it was close. I thought on one side of the ball, people were playing wonderfully. But overall, in terms of buzz and whatever, very clearly, it was lackluster. But what about the commercials, Dan? The, what did you think? When were the commercials last good? The, that's the thing we, we always say. Every year we say the commercials are a huge disappointment. But every year we also come to the conclusion that the commercials haven't been good for a decade. So, you know, if there were a couple commercials you talk about for at least a few minutes, that's kind of an achievement. I feel like we talked about the Andy Warhol commercial, right? For Burger King? A little bit? Here? You know, you mean the old commercial that he filmed that they re-aired? Well, it was a, an art movie. It wasn't like it was a commercial commercial. It shook people a little bit or threw them off their game. I, you know, most of those people, I suspect, had absolutely no clue who Andy Warhol is. I, I, I have no idea in 2019 how many people watch the Super Bowl and go, oh, look, it's Andy Warhol. <laughs> the, the, the number would probably sadden and 
perplex us. But yeah, I was I was definitely struck by the lack of good trailers. That was the thing that yeah. that I was bothered by. I, I want a good trailer, and there was a pre-game trailer for the Avengers sequel. That was okay. There was what else was there? There was, was a like Toy a, Story, a, a hot second Toy Story spot that was a little well, hot second to not long enough for for my Disney loving wife. It was it was a teaser, and so that's fine. But no, I, I definitely do think there were a lot of movies coming out later in the year that didn't get in on the Super Bowl, and I think that we've had a couple of years in a row of that, where a lot of the big movies were yeah. were sitting out. Where but, for a- and usually TV kind of steps up for that, but there was no Game of Thrones trailer, there was no Stranger Things trailer. Excuse me, did you did you not get what you needed out of the Bud Light commercial that became a Game of Thrones trailer? No, I did not. I don't necessarily blame you. Uh, it was it was a little bit peculiar. What else? What else even was there? There was the world's best immediately after the game. Dan, did you watch CBS's new America's Got Talent show? I did not because they were unable to impress upon me why they were giving the time slot to this show to begin with and why I was supposed to feel as if it was a worthwhile use of my time. The mere presence of Drew Barrymore as a judge on a TV show is not exciting enough to get me to watch. So yes, no, I did not. (laughs) Well, World's Best Collected is still impressive. 22.2 million total viewers. The game itself fell to a 10-year low, but that's still nothing to shake a stick at. 98.2 million total viewers watched the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's a lot of people. A lot of people. And Look, and for that, there are there are multiple reasons for the drop that are all reasonable. The primary reason being that everything drops. <laughs> everything drops, yes. It's a, it, that's the landscape that we're living in. A lot of people watch the game on streaming or bootleg sites or at parties, etc. And but, also, people yeah. hate the Patriots. And I, people I, hate the Patriots. And the game is boring. <laughs> I'm sorry. The game is boring. I would much rather watch Clayton Kershaw on a 1-1 tie game pitching duel because there you have a clear narrative. And okay, yes, there's a, a defensive game. But okay, we're going to argue. That is a choice. These. That is a preference. And yes. I'm not begrudging you that preference, but I'm simply saying that the, it was an unfortunate combination of two teams where you had these two giant media markets and you had on one side a team that everyone's sick of and on the other side a team that the media market that it's from hasn't fully embraced. And so those that was a combination of factors that would not necessarily have played all that well. So That takes us, as always, to our fifth and final topic, our Critics' Corner segment. Number five. Coming up this week are the returns of One Day at a Time, the second half of The Walking Dead's ninth season, Patriot Act and the debut of Hulu's Pen15, BET's reboot of Boomerang, and TBS's Daniel Radcliffe and Steve Buscemi comedy Miracle Workers. Dan, what's interesting? Well, I have, because I've been in the midst of the Sundance and TCA morass, I've I've only seen limited amounts of this. So one day at a time I endorse on principle because it's one day at a time. I have watched a handful of episodes of Hulu's Penis. I'm sorry. I've got to giggle at that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Hulu can be as coy as they want about being all pen 15. And that's part of the, the gimmick of the show, which features two actresses in their upper 20s, lower 30s playing junior high students, which is a really great gimmick but part of it is the sort of the winking and nudging of it all so the title pen 15 fits with that it's hulu's penis anyway it's worth watching the, what i would say about it is that it's a lot like the, a lot of the sort of cringy high school junior high shows that netflix has done in recent years you mentioned everything sucks a little bit earlier which was not among my favorite but a but one that i 
like it was a slow burn no i I like i absolutely i like everything sucks people should watch it and and then be disappointed that for some reason they didn't watch it sooner and it got canceled but you know most recently sex education big mouth animated show which is fantastic and also has a holiday episode coming out this weekend i believe so that's a thing yeah that would be where i would put pen 15 or hulu's penis or whatever you want to call it i'm Um, not gonna call it that that's fine but i think that the thing that people would like to hear us talk about frankly is to continue our conversation about rent and i would like to hear how the biggest rent fan that i know or at least who participates in this podcast with me felt about fox's live rent as you would say, Fox's quote-unquote live rent. I mean, look, they got stuck. You know, Brendan Hunt, who played the central role of Roger, broke his foot during the dress rehearsal the night before at the tail end of the play. I mean, it's a three-hour production, and it, he literally broke it in the last act. And pardon the pun, it's a tough break, but from all reports about the people who were who were there for the, the rehearsal, it was an incredible performance, which we actually got to see because that's what Fox decided to broadcast up until the point in which... Brendan Hunt broke his foot, in which case they went live on the network to see him in a wheelchair with his foot in a huge cast and the and the original stars coming out and his current Fox cast supporting him. I mean, what I saw, I liked. I mean, this is still an important musical that's airing on a big broadcast network that's about some very important themes. And I don't disagree with that. I I think it's ridiculous that they had an ensemble and that none of those people was capable of stepping in. Charlie Collier today was asked if he would ever use understudies should, if, big should and if, Fox ever does another live musical performance. And Dan, much to your chagrin, here's what he said. He said that it was impractical. And I don't know what that means. I, I'll say again, they had a large ensemble of people, and I'm not talking about the actual name cast members. There were the people in the background who are the ensemble, the chorus, etc. One of those people should have been trained to appear in several roles. That is how musicals and theater work. And I personally did not think that Brennan Hunt's performance was in any way notable enough that it had to have the entire show held up or held hostage around it. He was okay. And to me, that's part of it. I thought he was great. He was one of my, he was probably my favorite part of the whole thing. Well, him and Vanessa Hudgens. I mean, it's hard to sing poorly as Maureen and she crushed it. I thought that Vanessa Hudgens was great. And I thought that she and uh, Kiersey Clemens were easily the standouts of the show. And that when Vanessa Hudgens came in, she helped the show recover from all of the lackluster energy that it had had for the first third of the show, which to me includes Roger. (laughs) <laughs> and Mark, who I also thought was only so-so. And yeah, I, I thought that there was a lot of so-so. So it, it kind of fizzled, but had moments that worked. But as we established last time, I wasn't going to love it anyway. And so then promptly afterwards, NBC decided to pull the plug on, on hair. Yes. <laughs> NBC currently does not have a live musical in production in development. NBC has said that basically scheduling for Hair, which was going to air on Sunday, May 19th, which is opposite the American Idol season finale and this other TV event called the Game of Thrones series finale. And they didn't want, they wanted to reschedule it. But obviously when they took a step back to look at their schedule, there wasn't another time that that allegedly worked. And they kind of took a bigger look at what that musical was and realized that it wasn't going to be the big family-friendly production that they had had success with in the past <laughs> had, had anyone watched hair well, <laughs> presumably bob greenblatt who greenlit hair 
for NBC did, but Greenblatt is no longer with the network and his predecessors made ultimately made the decision to pull the plug. NBC is currently looking, allegedly looking at trying to secure rights to some other musicals to kind of take over that void. But I don't think they're going to have a live production in 2019. What is up with this graveyard of of NBC live things that didn't go forward? Like, I'm still waiting patiently for A Few Good Men. When is when is that coming? That is also in purgatory, as is Bye Bye Birdie with J-Lo, which was delayed twice because of scheduling issues. And yes, Jennifer Lopez is very busy. But that's also, is, is that going to be a show that that's a household family co-viewing draw? I mean... The answer is no, Dan. (laughs) No, but yes, like in the sense that you don't need to touch a word of Bye Bye Birdie, like with hair, they were going to have to cut corners in the same way that Run Live did. They they were going to have to sanitize it somewhat. Bye Bye Birdie can be done unexpurgated in junior high. You know, it is as as wholesome and family friendly as it gets. No one was going to feel like they tampered with Bye Bye Birdie and instead... I just I wonder what is happening. Just the graveyard of things they announce and then go. "Eh, We just decided we couldn't really do it. And but that's it's no different from scripted. I mean, look at the number of shows that are that are ordered a series that never air, right? Or the pilots that are produced that that never go forward. I mean, that's millions of dollars. I mean, these live productions are expensive. They're hard to cast. I had heard that NBC was going after Haley Steinfeld to star in Hair. Unclear if she turned it down. I would imagine she turned it down, and that possibly may have led to a larger conversation about it that and then the scheduling and the game of thrones of it all but i mean it, it, they're expensive to do and they're hard to do as we've seen with rent and it is true it's not like they pulled the plug on any of these things actually deep into rehearsal or anything they you know so you had baldwin cast but not rehearsing for a few good men you had j-lo cast and not rehearsing for bye bye birdie you're not really costing yourself anything that much but it becomes one of those things where you float something when you don't necessarily need to in the same way that going back to fx quickly that katrina for American Crime Story, got floated and recast and, and multiple redeveloped times. twice. Yeah. yeah, and we knew that it was supposed to be Charles and Diana for the second season of Feud, and we knew that there was supposed and that's to gone out the window too. And we knew there was supposed to be a Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton season of American. And Ryan Murphy decided not to do that after talking specifically with Monica Lewinsky. It's just the funniness of when things get put out there versus when they don't. You know, when development is able to be quiet on something, and when development is really, really loud, and thus it becomes loud when it goes under. But what, look, and that's what happens when you have a hit show. I mean, when feud breaks out, the, the natural thing to do is renew it, drum up interest, make sure that people know what the future of it is. And that's and look, as a reporter, when there's a big, hot show like that, that's my job to report on what's going on. So don't be mad at me, Dan. I am not mad at you. I'm just, I'm just baffled by the world and baffled by a world in which a, a live musical with all of that money behind it and all of that rehearsal and preparation did not have understudies. Yeah. It was disappointing to say the least that what, what we saw was the rehearsal. And I still liked what I saw. But rather than repeat all of that, this feels like a good note to end things on instead. Dan, thank you as always for your time. And thank you, kind viewers, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. And if you like us, be sure to rate us and write reviews. Till next week, Leslie. Till next week, Dan. 